So this evening we'll have a, a occasion to uh, for people to ask questions, or some questions. Um, but before we do that, let's <coughs> spend a little time in meditation together to clarify, and then maybe you see what you need to ask about, what you need clarification or support with in your practice. So spend a little time in meditation. As we chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness, and this is a, obviously a strongly emphasized theme in Dhamma practice, um, just the, which uh, just gives some introductory comments, kind of like an introduction to that, or a way which uh, we can enter this in, and so we can integrate this theme. It's not really separate from the rest of it. What it hinges on is all these qualities of compassion, kindness, appreciative joy and equanimity all hinge around one particular aspect of our nature which is our empathic nature. We have this sense of uh, tuning in to how it feels, how it feels for others, how it feels for ourselves, tuning into how it, how it is in an empathic way which means that rather than just you know, thinking about it and knowing about it, we just want to kind of feel it and resonate with that more steadily. Yeah. It's that willingness and interest in resonating with, being with in an empathic way, not in understanding or achieving or making anything happen or discovering anything, realizing anything, or even improving anything. Yeah, just to resonate with something in an empathic way. Let oneself be touched by uh, experience, one's own or others. So this is the fundamental quality called anukampa. It uh, means to tremble or resonate with. It's the very um, initiation, uh, the initiative uh, that the Buddha took that caused him to teach. He had this sense of, of anukampati, or resonating with, the, with other beings, with their suffering and their aspirations. You know, oh yes, I'm like that too. And then from that, his whole teaching career 
began from that initial resonance. So, so important. Mm. The attribute of the awakened mind. So steadying ourselves into the embodiment experience, how it is, what tells us we have a body as distinct from a thought about the body or an attitude, what really is the body expressing itself to us, telling us about warmth or pressure, tension, upright, painful, pleasant, you know, high energy, low energy, all these experiences, the embodied experience. And we're looking really to find the stable, what's the most stable piece in all that that we can use just to get our moorings, get it ground. giving whatever we can find, it's not rock solid, but it's more stable than the rest, whatever we can find there, giving it frequent consideration and attention, opening up to it, considering it, giving it a thought, like that's my back, or that's the out-breath, or that's that feeling of stability. So it becomes very strongly established in the mind, bearing it in mind, being mindful of that.
Now you can enrich this if you're feeling your out-breath. When you get to the end of the out-breath, imagining or getting the sense of really breathing. And then the energy of the out-breath, that quality of breathing out, releasing, touching or going into that place of stillness or steadiness. You may not be able to locate it exactly, but it's a sense of earthed, grounded, breathing in, breathing out, fully resting the out-breath on that quality. So it's all the time in the world, that tone, just to rest the mind, rest the out-breath onto the sense of something is, is steady, stabilizing. And this will increase and enrich it. The more you give your attention to that, And with the in-breath, taking some of that quality of steadiness, you feel your body expand with the in-breath. So if the essence of that can suffuse your chest, your throat, even up into your head. Mm. Lengthening, steadying, lengthening and then widening the focus of your attention. So if you want to include your entire body, bearing the whole body in mind as you breathe in, feeling it, the effect on the whole body and breathing out. Mm. And you may not be able to get that, but at least Inclining that way, getting the center and then just inclining to including a little more. The more you conclude, the stronger and the richer, the more fulfilling it is. I'm going to spend some time just taking all that in.
and imagine, bring to mind, imagine a really good friend or even the quality of a really good friend or what that would be like or is like for you. That which uh, is wishes to meet you as you are. This quality, the beautiful, the good friend. Or that feel like to be in the presence of, to be welcoming, to be meeting. Just play with that sense. Some could say someone would like to hear from you, you know, interested, interested in, in meeting you. As you are. And you think the thought repeatedly and then the feel, the, the mood, and then even try to feel it in your body. So you feel safe, relaxed, open. Don't have to be that together or perfect or anything. You know, just some that sense of what you or feel it in your body, in your heart. And just keep giving attention to that. What that feels like. Any time that has happened, it, does happen or could happen. Yeah. So it really helps if you have a in a specific memory of a person who has offered you that. So you, you see you can really get quite full experience of that and then linger on it, bring it back, linger on it, bring it back, bring it to mind. How you how you are with that. So that willing, willingness, that good energy is coming towards you. You don't have to come up with something. You're just being held in that, in that quality. Good willing, emotional willingness coming this way. Mm-hmm. Now we can open and relax into that. First, we're just checking, is there anything stopping me? Is there anything stopping me from being open to that quality? Mm-hmm. Nervous or uncomfortable or why bother? It's kind of mental 
experiences, then at least willing to meet, to acknowledge that, the feeling of that. If things do seem to be, you seem to get a clear sense of that, a felt sense of that, then is anything stopping me from feeling steady or at peace? Is anything there? And maybe feel really good, then your, your spiritual friend would say, oh, that's wonderful, that's great, really pleased that things are going well for you. This enjoyment, this is called mudita, appreciative joy. And, uh, you know, so anywhere we feel a sense of, uh, you know, things, things are okay, hey, you know. And so something's okay, otherwise, otherwise we wouldn't have got through the day. So being able to appreciate mudita, anything that's not so okay, what would they say? Yes. Oh, that's that's oh, that's oh, I'm touched by that. You know, quality of compassion. But overall, generally, the sense is one of emotional willingness and metta. Not not shutting down, not turning away, real willingness to be with. Seeing if there's anything there in your body-mind that uh, needs to be seen or heard. Could be just a slight tension or an agitation, you haven't got words for. Something in your body, some stirring in the heart, can't really explain it, it just doesn't matter. Just placing that friend, bringing that to that friend's attention, and just resting there.
And then perhaps uh, opening a space for others. So we just, it's like opening a space. Is there any, anyone comes to mind? If you're naturally empathic with or concerned for or interested in emotional willingness, metta, emotional openness, not closing down or moving away from. Start with easy ones. So you might start something like your dog. Very easy. <laughs> Not embarrassing. So your cat. Then see if you can work on to the human level. <laughs> so it can be, you know, People you, you feel looking after, that can be quite easy. People you respect or admire, that can be quite an easy place to feel that, that sense of you know, empathy, emotional willingness. Near or far, alive or dead, They feel them that they're people who are experiencing good fortune in one way or another, then the sense of gladness and appreciation. They're experiencing suffering in some way, the sense of compassion, willingness to share, to receive to their, their pain or their sorrow. Uh, openness to that, wanting to be a good friend.
as we open from the depth of the meditation, still bearing that quality in mind, and it's the touching into, you know, life situation, what we're doing, what you normally do, and what would your good friend say, what their response be to, you know, your, your daily schedule, your daily run around, your daily life, is it going, what would their response be, you take it easy, or don't worry about that, or whatever, you know, it's quite ordinary things really. So then we'll just uh, come out of the silence, include the meditation. So a few few moments. Uh, the skill of asking questions. You know, these, this particular occasion, time here. Um, you know, it's really quite a special occasion. So, I mean, I quite happy. I quite like hanging out with people and having a wrap and how things are going. But um, to make use of this particular time, just really look at certain things. There's a particular you know, clarification that's required. What did you mean by da, 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 you know, or I am Medinandi, could you say a little bit more about da, 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 you know, just clarifying, teasing out something that you didn't quite get or you'd like to hear again. That's one particular thing you might like to bear in mind. Or something particular about your practice that's happening now. Really look into what's the bit of it, you know, the real bit that's stick, sticking or isn't is foggy for you, you know, <coughs> like that. Um, uh, looking for just some advice or some some feedback on that. These are useful questions, or maybe you do have some map of your practice, like I do, da, 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 and what I've been hearing here. How does that fit into the map of my practice? You know, is it different words or I'm on the wrong track or how does that all fit so something even a little more conceptual but uh, so these are areas you might like to look into framing a useful question the floor is open Good point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Better make them short then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't understand what a phrase in 
in its spawn, a threefold bliss. I don't under, I don't remember what that means. Then we say you like in the chanting. There's a phrase, the threefold bliss, which I believe occurs in the sharing of blessings. May you attain the threefold bliss. What is the threefold bliss, or even the onefold bliss? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my understanding of it is uh, that threefold bliss means um, the bliss or the happiness of the kind of ordinary human happiness, which we'd say is living blamelessly with morality and kindness, so this kind of contentment in this world. The second is the, well, the heavenly bliss, which is to do with uh, Devaloka, or uh, another way of looking at it is in terms of um, jhana, you know, so meditative, that sense, you know, more refined, non-sensual, non-worldly. And the third kind of bliss is the bliss of release, or Nibbana. May you attain all of those. <laughs> yes, yes. But then this morning you uh, mentioned bringing um, a kindness, almost like a stroking and loving um, feeling or attitude to a, a difficult or harsh situation. Flush that out a more, so bringing a kindly attitude towards a difficult situation that you is coming to mind as you meditate. Hmm? Is that is that the question? I'm embracing it. I think I said embracing it. That was it, yeah. Yeah, so when you're in a whatever, you know, state of mind that seems dry or harsh or bitter or sour or anything of this nature, then how do you bring an embracing quality? What's that about? And, um, yeah, I think I use the term embracing. And for me, this means, uh, you know, just checking there is there in a, in a when a mind state is experienced. There's the mind state is being experienced, and then it's generally what we don't necessarily really see is that the sense of uh, our our, res- relate, our relationship with that. Often we generally want unpleasant mind states to go away naturally, or there's something wrong, or how can I get rid of this? difficult mind state, I'm feeling some ill will or some resentment or pain, you know, how do, how do I deal with this, make it go away, find out who was responsible for it, or whatever. So that it's, it tends to be, let's get over this <laughs> somewhere or another. So, and, um, the, so then the, the, so that you check that, generally it's pretty easy you say, do you want this to stay or would you like this to go away? Quite quickly you say, well, I'd like, you know, this to go away. And that's what practice is about, isn't it? Just making this dukkha disappear. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, it is, but there are, 
one of the ways in which we the the, the lead into that is first of all that um, you have to sort of embrace it, which means uh, like uh, check check that check what what you're doing with that, and then pausing and taking like um, being being willing to be with that, you might say, and and where where. You know, like all the time in the world to be with this, um, willing to be with this, um, uh, checking that which wants to push it away or to under, even to understand it. Uh, it's a certain humility, a certain sense of even surrender, openness, uh, and you might particularly images might come to mind why I use the word like embrace because it's suggestive of a certain response towards pain when it's in another person or an animal you, you tend to want to, to get there and touch it and smooth it and stroke it but when it's one's own one tends to want to push it away so sometimes if we bring to mind the image of this is another person how would you be with that and you'd probably think, oh, well, I'd like to sort of, you know, get round them and tell them it's not, you know, somehow hold them in that. And uh, so something like that can produce, catalyze a response that's actually quite natural, natural in our empathic state, but we don't always have an empathic relationship to what we experience as ourself. We tend to have a critical or a performance relationship, measuring it in terms of how good, bad, right, wrong it is, rather than an empathic one. So it's just changing the nature of the relationship. Yes? It's a question about the skillful way of using an instruction like soften and widen, which I found a very useful kind of instruction to apply to experience and to apply to places of contraction or difficulty. But then it becomes sometimes exhausting because it becomes another tool to be applied when I encounter these things and I go through a meditation with this fixer up there looking for all the contractions and it works so there's a lot of incentive to use it but then it's just so much doing and exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's the problem of the doer, isn't there? You know, so the question is is, uh, the, the theme of Softening and widening as you as we meet difficulties, we meet hurt, defensive or contracted or shut down places in our body mind. Then the experience of the suggestion of softening and widening is a very helpful one, but it also can be quite exhausting because uh, maybe there's quite a few things that want to come up and be met by that response, and it becomes another thing that one sort of has to keep doing. Would you say that's reasonable interpretation? Yeah, so the problem is 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 the doer, and uh, 
there's a you know the very the, the image or the, the, the language I'm using is like as uh, bear in mind that it's uh, it's got to come from the heart and uh, it's a matter of you know the widening is is the sense of willingness and sometimes actually I'm not that willing right now <laughs> give me time and I might get around to it but I've had enough for the day <laughs> and like, yeah that's right <laughs> That's as wide as it's going to get right now. <laughs> okay, I'll rest with that, you know. <laughs> so it doesn't become another thing I've got to keep doing and obliged to do and, uh, and judge myself as whether I've done enough of it, whether I've been compassionate enough and all that. You know, it's really... So the, all these, you know, all these instructions... You know, uh, uh, words so that naturally they can move to the abstract, conceptual level, which the abstract means you've got to do this 24 7, 100%, and so on, and abstract. When we translate it into the more organic, you always got to check out with, well, actually, what's happening? What is the capacity right now? You know, is there that movement towards that? Or, you know, no, you know. Uh, not right now there isn't you know, we've got to wait for that to happen so it's because it, we want to come in with the f- something that happens with that suggestion that it can happen you know quite lightly and joyfully mm. and uh, you know it, it all it's a it's a kind of uh, you know a release insight practice. My my sense is that all of us have to spend time just developing the resources to be able to do these kinds of things, you know. And the developing resources is it really is, you know, enlightened self interest. Like, what about me? <laughs> You know, and just finding the place where you do already feel good, where you where you feel strong, where you feel good, and just spending quality time just doing that. You know, there's always all the difficulties and the suffering and problems of this nature. Just sort of spend time checking in with where you feel good and contented, wherever that is, and make much of that. So that's the food. That's the food, and and it's always, I would say, because a lot of our, you know inclinations and aspirations is to is to release and clear things but uh, you know it's important to spend time in non in just dealing with your non-suffering you know this is where I feel good and just enjoy and that, that build that up and then so you've got a balance between how much you give how much you give and how much you just rest and restore Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Gentlemen. I wonder if you could speak towards um, the sort of balancing effort in terms of sort of the just letting the mind wander and beating yourself up for it as opposed to um, the real sort of forceful going to do this, I'm going to find the present moment, I'm going, 
trying to find a balance between those two ex extremes where it's sort of skillful in terms of realistic in terms of how I can approach it right now. So your question really is about right effort between either, you know, if you just let it all go, the mind wanders and drifts, and then you feel bad, but if you push too hard, it just wears you out and you feel bad. <laughs> Would you like to address that, uh, Jen? Again, it's a question of balance. Like you know, you you know if you're not a good swimmer, and you have in front of you the ocean, maybe you're not going to go very deep because it might be dangerous. Um, you might tire yourself out, so you practice a little bit, and then you come ashore. So you know that if your mind wanders too far, that's dangerous. So you try not to let it go too far and restrain, restrain. But also, um, when you're in the present moment, you might feel restored and refreshed, like someone resting on the beach before they go for a big swim. So. You, you, you know your own limit, but you know the results of letting your mind be lost. And you know the refreshment that comes from being present. So then the mind starts to see, well, this is my real home. This present moment is, is restorative, is refreshing, is delicious. And it naturally, you kind of wean it but if you force it, you just crush it. So it is, you have, you have, each one of us has a different way of balancing just by paying good attention and knowing how urgent it is. It's life-saving um, to, to, even if the mind is wandering, to attend to that, pay attention and see, oh, it's wandering, wandering, wandering. And lightly, gently coax it back, not like a bulldog, but like a gentle creature that's just learning with compassion. And uh, then you're a friend to yourself, and you restore yourself in a way that you can deal with, that isn't frightening or isn't discouraging. The Buddha gives such a beautiful example of um, tuning an instrument. You know the example where the Venerable Sona, who's exerting himself so much on his walking path, and he had very, he came from a um, rather delicate background. He had very tender feet, and he exerted so much for the practice that his walking path was covered with blood. His feet were bleeding, and when the monks noticed this, they reported it to the Buddha. Of course, the Buddha saw, he came and looked at the Venerable's walking path and saw it covered with blood. And then he, he addressed him on this matter and said, 
gave the example of if he wanted to make his, an instrument produce a beautiful sound, if the strings were too tight, then they would just break and no beautiful sound would come out. And likewise, if they were too loose, then it would be useless to pluck them because there would be no, no harmony produced. So by finding the right balance of effort, then in the same way, with working with the mind, you watch it wander and you know that this is conditioned. This is what we've been doing forever, letting our minds wander. And it produced what kind of result? Restlessness, boredom, irritation, frustration, maybe a momentary happiness because you remember something wonderful. Uh, But how long are you going to keep remembering that? Because it's finished. It can't make us truly happy. But being at rest in the present moment brings us such a deep, abiding happiness that we begin to see the health, the music, the balance, the the fine, clear sound within the heart of just being content with this moment. It's more than a contentment. It's a true source of happiness, and the wandering mind is just exhausting. And so the mind learns this. And eventually, just like the little puppy dog that you train gently, gently, by showing it where the food is, it starts to come back naturally. And that's what practice is. And then you find ways to to um, make the present moment attractive to the heart rather than beating oneself up because we're, we're doing the thing we think isn't good. Because that's a judgment, it's an opinion. And the opinions are more thoughts. So the more we're having an opinion about following our thoughts, then we're just thinking again. You know, this is where we get in trouble, so thinking. Thank you. That was. Uh, I think we could just use some help with that. What is the stream? So this obviously it's a image you're referring to. Yes, we're supposed to the first level of enlightenment. I'm told is the stream Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the question is about the first level of awakening called stream entry. So what is this stream? How do you enter it? <laughs> Why is it? <laughs> yeah. Was triggered by the 
by your reaction, your, uh, your reference to the energy of empathy. Ah, yeah, the energy of empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, this this way I understand it, this the this is all all it's all quite metaphorical. So, the image of the stream is used to indicate something that's flowing in one direction. Streams don't go uphill, do they? Flow in one direction. So when you've entered the stream, you're no longer kind of, which way do I go? Which way is it? Is it that way? How do I get there? But it's going that way. So you've got a sense of assurance and confidence. That's the way it's going. And you've got some sense of, you know the current. You know how to float. You know how to swim. You've got the direction. You're in it. You're going that way. And it's flowing towards complete awakening. So until you're in that, then it, the, the image is sometimes used of you're running up and down the bank, wondering which way to go and how you're going to get there. And so you haven't really plunged into the direct experience of Dhamma. We maybe got ideas about it, thinking about it. Is it this? Is it that? Uh, or we have ideas about ourselves. Oh, can I do it? Am I this kind of person? What was I? What will I be? This is called... And, or you have uh, uh, attachment to particular systems and, te- and customs, like you can only enter the stream this way or that way. You know? So all this stuff, these are the three, what are called the three first fetters, personality view, which means you, I might, you, know, you have an idea about yourself. That I'm, can't, I'm not the sort of person who enters the stream or maybe I've already entered it or how do I, you know, How's it going to accommodate me? I'm this kind of person, that kind of person. So you keep thinking about yourself, you don't enter the stream. (laughs) If uh, either you think you have entered the stream or you think you haven't entered the stream, if you're thinking about yourself like that, you don't get into it because you just... (laughs) There's no boat there. That doesn't do it. It's just the sinker. And then, then you have doubt about the Dhamma... Should I be doing Zen or Tibetan or Dzogchen or Vipassana, Jhana, Satipatthana, more Satipatthana, less Vipassana, Samatha, then again you're just running up and down the bank. Because uh, it's just attachment to systems, customs, techniques and ideas. Oh, no, this is attachment to or speculative, continual speculation about the Dhamma. You know, it's like when they ask the Dalai Lama, what's the, what's the cheapest way to enlighten, the quickest, cheapest, easiest way to enlightenment? And he said, basically, that's no way to enlightenment. <laughs> it's the wrong way to look at it, you know, because you're still hav- wobbling and wavering, and you've got to plunge in, you know, do it. It's direct experience, not conceptual. Third is you get stuck in particular systems and customs, uh, the, about maybe about Dhamma practice, this is the only way, and so forth, and then that acts as a hindrance because you're still trying to control it. You know, you're trying to make the Dhamma fit your ideas and your systems, make it domesticate it. You know, so it's, and it, that doesn't enter the stream. That's like taking some of the river out and holding it in your hand and saying, "Oh, look, I've entered the stream." <laughs> Because you've got a handful of water, you know, <laughs> that isn't it either. So when you stop doing all that stuff, then splosh. 
you're in there. Yeah. And there's a sense of ease, assurance, and, uh, and that. so that's, that's what that's about, really, stream entry. Sorry? Um, energy of empathy yeah, is part of it, but it's uh, there is some realization of somewhere there's some realization of release. Of, that's where there's oh, there is a stopping of suffering, there is a stopping of stress, there is a now when I said using the term, you know, the experience of self just. You know, the, the actual experience, the rate of experience of selfhood is of some kind of need to have, to be, to become, to get away, to know, to learn, to find something. Now any, when some realization that that thing, which seems so incessant and so much part of what we are, stops. Oh. Yeah, so that, that's like a you know, some sense of something like that stops and you, well, you know, what's that? What's that? How do I do that? And then you've got, and you're back in yourself again. But there's some sense of a realization. So it's not particularly, I mean, emotional empathy is part of that. Um, energy of empathy is part of all that. But it's, that's not, uh, that's just a tool. That's just a, 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 a way or a means towards that sense of release, which may be only momentary and probably not completely understood, but there's some sense of, you know, there is. Interestingly enough, a stream entrer doesn't necessarily always know that. So in, when you see it in the, in, the, in the scriptures, sometimes somebody has to remind someone, look, this and this and this has happened. You get it? You know, this means this. And they go... Oh yeah, so it's it's not necessarily that clear. The person may have had an experience of that nature, and yet they're so go back to their thinking minds and their old habits that they they lose touch with that. So sometimes they have to be kind of almost brought back to that place where something has fallen away because you can easily forget it or not be in touch with it. Yes. This morning you talked about um, perceptions and feelings. And so when a memory or a feeling comes up and um, there's this habit of reacting to it, and you talked about restraint, the pause. So the pause is happening, but how... Um, I'm a little bit confused about understanding and investigating. What will happen after the pause? What, how do we get, how, do, how the clarity comes? Whether any clarity will come, whether any understanding will come. Mm -hmm. So, you're referring to something that I said about, um, you know, maybe meeting our our emotions, where we get a, 
perception means as some kind of image or meaning, you know, like I've been, you know, let down or something like that. That's the meaning of it. And then the feeling, which is pain. So the, the feeling is always very simple, either pain or pleasure or neutrality. But then the, me- the meaning of it is things like uh, uh, welcomed or betrayed or something like that. That's, that's the perception. So when we come to that, then normally when one of those things, when those experiences arises, there's very immediate reaction to that. We seize it, and then the story starts going. Yeah. So the advice was, sangwara restraint means you're checking the moment of that arising. Check, pause before before we get involved and engage with it, either to go through the whole story again or to push it away. It's the pausing. And then you're asking, what next? (laughs) Well, um, yeah, okay. So the pausing is really to do with what's called sankhara, which means an energy, a mental energy, which normally bonds to perceptions and feelings. It's called sankhara. It means it makes something out of it. It generally spins the story. It's sankhara. So it's the activator. Um, and with the pause, it's just to pause, put a hold on any kind of activation, any activity. So that's the stopping. Then, so then that, in fact, might be all that's needed. Just holding that pause, it might be that just in that, in that space, things start to unravel and dissolve by themselves. You know, the, the, the emotional mood just poof, you know, passes away. Or it may be that um, as you pause, it sort of changes and you, and, uh, uh, and you, you experience that same thing in a slightly different way. Mm. So the pause itself, the non-doing by itself may be you know, really all that's needed just to hold the pause. Or it may be that in that pause, there's some, something says, well, what, 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 you know. So we might say, you know, one thing just to, these are all quite subtle things and they're not, none of it's really a technique. You've got to wing it and intuit it. But you might very well have a kind of question there, what, what, what's needed? What does, not what I need, but what does this thing, this experience, what does it need? Please, you know, please tell me what you need. You know, and it may sense just like space, you know, you know. Or it may want uh, um, to move, you know, to space movement. Um, or you may just ask that question and find that something happens in your body. You get a sort of a sigh or, a, a, or, or a, a energy arising or maybe you weep, you know, something like that might happen. Or you, so the very question isn't really asking for an answer. It's just almost eliciting empathy you know so we're not just pause and step back we're also willing and empathic to well what's what's needed here so the very gesture of offering empathy to a difficult uh, emotional mind state that's what that's what one does we can do however what's however you do that and then again it's not up to you it's up to it Uh, mm-hmm. The other th- things you might very well even 
sort of confusing or it's still, if it's got a lot of stories associated to it, then you've got, what actually is the point here? What's the real bit? So there's inquiry. You know, so it's all he did this and she never done that and da 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 and I always do this. What's the real bit here? The one word bit. And it says, you know, something like, uh, you know, stuck or um, let down or shut out or can't do, you know, can't do frustration. So you get the one bit. So that's what uh, it's called appropriate attention. It means you scan it and you say, what's, ask it, what's the one bit? And maybe, you know, so again from that place where first we just meet something that feels difficult, we pause, okay, we're, we're empathic, and then we might even inquire, you know, please, what's the one bit here that really needs to be heard? And it's all quite intuitive and perhaps slower and softer than than I say it. <laughs> so this doesn't involve the conceptualizing or understanding it? So not really, no. No, it's not about understanding it conceptually, because that is really just translating it into conceptual terms. It doesn't do it, just translates it. <laughs> takes it up into your head and it doesn't get resolved there. It may be at the end of the process it, it comes, you know, at the end of the whole process you get, well the thing is and you get the, then you get the concept which is quite useful because that, store, that stores it. You can store it as a concept but you can't, can't realise it as a concept. So, but then it's useful to Right, I must remember that about the way I act. Don't do that again or act that way in the future. You know, then you've got the, the concept comes right at the end of it, just to wrap it up. If any come, sometimes they don't come. So I was talking about the two places where difficult feelings get um, crystallized or get locked. That is, one is the sense of myself. You know, so there can be a whole kind of storehouse of difficult feelings that, that are held under myself. You know. The other one is, is the other's which is going to carry a whole lot of difficult feelings. And because uh, the point of, of these is that these, these ideas, these notions, myself and others, which have some relevance, you know, they do mean something, but when they're held in the heart, they, they, they prevent us from unwrapping the, 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 what they contain. You know? So if it's myself, 
well, this is why I am, I'm stuck with this, I'm always like this, I did this and I did that, and therefore that. So it's, it's shut down. It's held as a, some kind of permanent entity. It's other people, other people are like that, they always do that, they never do that, that's for him, he's always that way. You know, let's close that one down. <laughs> you know, we don't, so there's no release possible in those scenarios, is there? And um, I guess most of us probably recognize there's all kinds of other people stuck in here. When you, when you sit down, there's a few other people who start talking to you, don't they? Maybe, you know. Uh, so-and-so always does this. and you know. So these people, where are they? Where are all these other people? How come they're in here if they're other people? <laughs> and some of them, you know, they've even died and they're still here. You know, it's years ago. So where are these other people? And they are, are really... You know, what other, what particular events and behaviors have triggered in us? So my feeling of being intimidated means that all these other people are bigger and stronger than me. There's all these other people who are smarter than I am. What that means is my sense of intimidation or fear or inadequacy. That, that experience. So we come to that, you know. So when you start to unwrap what other, what other people mean as a direct experience, yeah, then you start to learn something about yourself. Other people are better than me. Other people are wiser than me, kinder than me, brighter than me, more diligent than me, more enlightened than me, and so on. Isn't that true? Everybody, isn't that true? Other people are wiser than me, smarter than me, stronger than me. (laughs) Where are these other people then? (laughs) Where are they? (laughs) Everybody's the odd one out, right? With all those other people who are wiser than me, stronger than me, smarter than me, or how come? How come I always get to be with irritating people? <laughs> you know, I'm just a reasonable, average, kind of easygoing kind of guy. I was living with difficult, irritating people. Why is that? <laughs> I have no aversion in my mind. It's just that other people are irritating. <laughs> Where are they, you know? How come? <laughs> so other, other people tell us something about the bits of our self, uh, our packaging that we haven't really uh, seen clearly. Yeah? <laughs> Therefore, one should be grateful to other people. <laughs> yes. You uh, say something more about um, reflections on death and um, how to do that without tapping into the actual um, painful um, side of it. Pessimist or something, morbid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, because the thing is, if I think that, or we chant the reflections on 
on dying, for instance, it doesn't bother me to chant that, but in a way it remains at the level of idea. But really, if I access how I feel about death, and I want to reflect on it, really, there's a lot of emotion mm -hmm. and feeling of dread. So mm -hmm. what would be a skillful way to, to do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, just to repeat the question about uh, a question about reflecting reflecting on death and uh, what a skillful way to do that could be when the uh, uh, emotional or personal re reaction or response seems to be one of fear or contraction or uh, some kind of a what seems to be not not beneficial in one's practice and and of course the Buddha really recommended doing this practice um, uh, I think in <clears throat> one instance he said that uh, the kind of two things you couldn't do too much of are metta or loving kindness practice and reflecting on death because of the value that it can have. And, and then, but for me, it's like with all of these practices, it's just really seeing what, well, what are the effects actually when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm trying to engage with these different practices. And so I would say it's, it's uh, actually quite uh, a sort of an expected and um, not a wrong thing that one sees, okay, right, this is, this is my reaction. Actually, that just noticing that that, that, that is your response in this particular moment to reflecting on death is part of the value of the practice of reflecting on death. You're already doing it. And just seeing that has its own value so that the uh, lessons that we learn um, from these practices, uh, maybe especially this one, won't necessarily be the lessons we, we expect or think we're going to learn. And the parts of us which we find that, are, uh, that feel threatened or uh, you know, whatever the response is, sometimes it's very valuable to start to allow, allow them into, it's a way of allowing them into consciousness. And uh, it does have to be balanced. Um, like one can develop, there's various ways to, to do this sort of with formal practices as well as just, you know, using one's own uh, ways of, of reflecting on death. Um, and I've, I've experienced a little myself, but I've certainly... Um, come across people who've used some of these formal practices. Particularly, uh, there's one where you're not just only reflecting on death, but you're reflecting on the, the body and the sort of decomposition of the body. So it's a little bit different. It's uh, the asuba practice, but it's related. Asuba meaning the unattractiveness of the body. The two can be used in conjunction, reflecting on death and reflecting on 
the body as being, you know, something which is born, it's alive, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not beautiful or ugly, it's just what it is. And it, as well as having the aspects to it that we find attractive, it also has the aspects to it that we find unattractive. And turning the mind towards those unattractive aspects can be actually very valuable for getting a, a, a handle on and a, a kind of um, consciousness of our own attachments in a non-conceptual way, on a way that really starts to get to the, the, the roots of it. So, um, but sometimes people using the super practice find that, that it results in depression. You just start getting really depressed. Everything looks gray. You, well, I mean, it's kind of expectable maybe because you're practicing looking at everybody as skeletons with skin on them. But basically, uh, it needs to be balanced sometimes because just seeing that, okay, what is the, what is the effect? What is it having, on, uh, the effect that it's having on me? And so in that case, practicing, you know, making a sort of formal, a time to formally practice loving-kindness meditation often has a, a way of just sort of clearing that and allowing the practice of asubha, or the practice on the unattractive aspects of the body, uh, to be possible without having that effect of the sort of depression. So it might be that reflecting on death, you know, is similar for you in, in that sense, where it could be balanced with another practice which has a different um, result. And I find that, you know, those two that the Buddha recommended so highly, loving-kindness and reflecting on death, go together very well. Um, for me, I have found it very valuable. Uh, we might have talked about it in our group. I can't remember if it was in the group with, uh, that you were in this, this afternoon or, or not. But uh, one of the most valuable uh, ways of sort of keeping myself aligned with what's most important to me throughout my life has been using this image of, okay, when I'm dying, if I'm lucky enough to be conscious when I'm dying and knowing that I'm on my deathbed, what is going to be important to me? You know, almost picturing myself. We always think of ourselves as sort of, you know, 90 years old and our family gathered around and it's almost never like that, is it? But it doesn't matter. Taking the image, whatever it is, of when I'm, when I'm dying, what is going to be important to me then? You know, at that time, all of the, everything I've built, everything I've created, all of the successes and failures, all of that will be in the past. It will just be this moment now moving on into the unknown and actually putting myself in that in a state of mind, imagining it. What will be important to me? And it's always for me, the, 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 the heart comes up with the feeling of, well, it's the quality of, the quality of heart, the quality of the way I've lived my life, the quality of mind that I have now, and, and having no regrets, you know, having, feeling that I've, I've uh, if there are things that I've done in my life which have caused pain to others, you know, I've, I've somehow patched it up, or, you know, that the, the slate is as clean as possible, and the things that will be important to me are, are the things that uh, actually I value most, which is why I've chosen to be a monk, and which is probably why we choose to do this practice. And, and so just using that kind of image, 
I found helpful. Um, in terms of the fear um, that can come, I would say, much like Ajahn Suchito was just talking about the other, the question of when there's a repetitive you know, emotion that comes up, different ways we can actually deal in the moment with that. I would uh, encourage just keeping it as something which is very much, okay, this moment, this is what I'm experiencing now, and sort of just allowing it to be a, a practice for this moment. And then not, not making yourself wrong for feeling this way, you know, and not so it's, it's totally kind of uh, expected, you're doing the practice right, whatever re- response, reaction one gets, that's part of it. And so then how to uh, engage with what we're experiencing in a way which leads to uh, wisdom with it. It might just be observation, like Ajahn Suchita said, just 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 holding it in the in the allowing it to rest in the the still water of a caring awareness. So the, the netta can be there, in the sense of not having to feel a particular feeling of loving kindness that we identify. That's that's what I feel like when I'm feeling loving. But more just the noticing that the fact that we're doing this practice at all is an expression of caring itself. And so it's already there. Just so noticing, yes, I care about myself. That's why I'm doing this. And just that simple awareness, this, you know, I'm afraid. I'm afraid and not needing to solve it or fix it or move past it or find the answer or even what I'm afraid of or, you know, investigate it as something that we're, we're, we're doing to, to fix it. That can be enough. And that I often, I'll start with that. And I'll, I'll stay with that. And uh, there are many other ways of, engaging as well with the expression of, of difficult emotional reactions, uh, some of which Ajahn Chito just shared, you know, without looking for a particular uh, analytical, conceptual answer to it. Just, um, you know, asking oneself, you know, what is it, what, what, am, I, what am I afraid of? without looking for the answer, can be helpful too. So it's like, I would say that uh, it's a matter of not um, thinking there's a right way to do this, and I must be doing it wrong because I'm not you know, experiencing something. I don't know, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I know for me, when I start to get into these, uh, you know, when I get confused about my practice, that's often what's happening, is I, I, I have an assumption or expectation, and I'm not, uh, I've lost... The, um, I, I don't remember anymore that actually, well, here, I, you know, whatever is happening, this is the context with which I'm working. And, it, and it's it, as long as it's how I am with what is rather than what is. So the, the reaction of contraction or fear or whatever it is, is something which has been provided for me to practice with now by this practice of reflecting on death. And that's, 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 what it's supposed to be doing, and, and so how am I with this, and, and staying with that aspect of it. Um, and if it, and if it, you find it that, that it, it, it's overwhelming and having an effect which is, uh, you know, having a detrimental effect on your life, well then balancing it with something else or stopping it for a while. 
I don't know if those reflections are helpful at all. It's practiced diligently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's picking who? Uh, okay, Buzz? answer to the finding of the quick group. On the other hand, I don't think I'm going to actually, in my lifetime, get to really fathom all of, all of this, uh, what the Buddha taught about all the many lists of things and the ways to, to unlearn what, what we've learned that has gotten us into this mess. And therefore, I like to um, dwell on this idea of abiding in the present moment without having to belabor oneself. I like the idea of what Aya Medanandi spoke about. I mean, how do you account for her mom having had Alzheimer's and, and then having somehow or other, um, to some extent, broken through that Alzheimer's without having to, to do all this <laughs> work? And, um, So I guess it kind of comes down to this is a hell of a program that we've gotten ourselves uh, <laughs> uh, enslaved by. Is the Buddha talking about the end of the programming of altogether, or is he, or is it another program to get rid of that program? <laughs> so can we just kind of condense that in a nutshell? Sure. It's about it's about whether or not. We're looking for a new program, or just trying to let it all go, as Ajahn Chah said, you know, a little bit of letting go, or a lot of letting go, you know, that way. <laughs> okay, so are we looking for a new program, or are we trying to let go of programs? Would you say, would that sum it up? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think we're... Looking for a program that ends the programs. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you need? What do you need? Yeah. Yeah. What do you need? Do do as little as possible. And then, if it's as uh, you know, so you don't want to have so many tools on the bench that you don't get to work. You know, simply fiddling with the tools, polishing the tools. But so you want to have a, you know. You want to know what you want to do, release. So do you need a wrench? Do you need a screwdriver? Do you need a hammer? Do you need some oil? What are the kind of things that are needed? So, uh, but generally, you know, I think my encouragement would always be as simple as possible. But something's needed. Sometimes things just slip, slip away. Sometimes things just slip out. You know, things get released. But... You know, <laughs> some effort is need, some application is needed. That's which I don't, you know, I don't see it. I don't know anybody who you really feel has had some valid realization who hasn't done something to trigger that, catalyze that, open to that, you know, and uh, to really deepen into that. So some something is needed, and then it's simple as possible, really. 
my, my, my suggestion. Uh, Buzz, I don't think that I didn't mean to say that my mother was enlightened. But she led a very pure life and she was a very meditative person. And um, whatever the sickness occluded to us who were with her, that all fell away. So her natural goodness and gentleness just shone through. The virtues of her heart shone through. And if we just work in the field of virtue and developing goodness, um, these are dhamma wings. There are other wings, other bits that we can add to the formula to give us the, the stability on the path without too much thinking. Those are just practicing purifying our hearts in every way that we can will be a natural boon to this path and not looking for a shortcut. I never think in terms of shortcuts. Um, I just try to deal with the moments as they come using whatever I can remember of what I've been trained to do to live those moments in the most skillful way I can. But if we're thinking about how to do a shortcut or trying to get the best, but this is a kind of already the sort of strategic planning that the computer programmers use or, you know, people who are getting ahead in the world. And here, I think the whole approach of the mind is much more of surrendering to the, the path understanding the role that our karma has to play in it and trying through skillful intention and training of the body, speech, and heart to unravel that karmic load and lighten ourselves enough so that we're, we're free. We can be free. We can free ourselves of the burden and wake up. But I don't think that the, the mind that is caught up with planning and, and uh, finding, a, you know, finding an easy way out um, is necessarily helpful. What comes to mind is that Lumpur Chaya and Chao say that uh, if you just keep really good virtue, sila, that will, reali- that will result in stream entry. Yes. So that was his, yeah. his, his sense of it. In other words, because that does mean you have to witness the mind like, and those un- the akusala, the unskillful inclinations, you restrain, you check, and you look towards skillful. And so you don't just you look for the opportunities for virtue, for generosity, for kindness. For, you really look for it. You look for truthfulness. When you see your mind wanting to squash scruples or take a shortcut or, yeah, it doesn't really matter, check, stop. You know? So because that does, that does bring mindfulness and right view to bear, you know, 
just in that way. So, and once there is that realization of stream entry, then um, you know the real thing. You know, the, you know, you know, you, you know where you're going. And it's a matter of just refining it. Stream entry is considered almost the major, the major. Even though it's the first, it's the major one because until then you're just groping in the dark. And once you're in this, in once you've entered the stream, you've got some reference to this is what release is, and then it's just working out the the, the rough patches. <laughs> Person at the back. Many deaths. Many deaths. Yeah, yeah. Say, like, a, like we kind of uh, are born with some capacity, some physical capacity, and as we get older, we start losing those physical capacities, so we may not be at death's door, but we're having parts of our, what we've known as, like, I guess, ourselves um, diminish. And there's a whole grieving process that happens, I think, before, just in the, in the aging. And, um, and also, I think in becoming like, as you begin to do these practices, I'm finding it that it really is, it's not, it's messy. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily neat, but it's that I guess as I'm trying to acquire that ability to step back, but it, um, from the amount of baggage that I've had in my lifetime, like that I've held down emotionally or this or that, that at first I was scared because so much strong emotions would come up as I would is my denial system hearing what my ego thought was going on, <laughs> wasn't going on. And I've seen real periods of, um, like at the last retreat I was at, I would be like real periods of just flooding with um, sorrow, pain, grief, fear, all that stuff. But, um, and the, the, the moment of surrender is like, am I going to break down or break through? Kind of, and just staying with it and trusting the process somehow. And then coming out, and then then feeling better, lighter, and then it being right back there again, and then beginning to see it. Oh my God! It's kind of like um, hairballs, coughing up hairballs.
Um, uh, I'm just going to pause there because I'm trying to actually summarize this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. just for this particular occasion. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, ego death and, uh, you know, bits of our, you know, in fact, you know, as I think somebody once said, those are not busy being born and busy dying. And in fact, we're generally doing both. So it's, a, you know, ego death is the ending of the last piece of what I sense myself as being. And that's both... Uh, a kind of um, shock and a shift, uh, a bereavement, and also a breakthrough. It's it's only through knowing what dies that you realize what doesn't. So the more you know what dies, the more you can realize what doesn't. And you only know what dies by feeling it happen. (laughs) Feeling it happen. And then you know, then you then you can get some sense of what doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Last last question. Hi, he not busy born, is busy dying, is Bob Dylan, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, this is taking me so long. I've been doing it for a couple of years, and the comments around the room were saying about the same thing. I was a drug addict, and I was much happier then. I was So is, uh, you don't get so good from dumber as you did from dope. That's the question, is it? And is there something wrong with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, yep. <laughs> Short answer, yes. There's something, something wrong, wrong view, I think. <laughs> There's different kinds of happiness, aren't there? Mm. Yeah. If, if it was that happy, you wouldn't be doing this. If you were that happy with it, you wouldn't be doing this. So, um, yeah, there's happiness, but there's something deeply unhappy. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother to do this. And, uh, yeah. Mm. Okay. Then you just, obviously, it's up for you to ask yourself that question. So that's enough for tonight. Thank you very much.